Good morning again. Are you ready? We have all sorts of stuff to do, so uh, let's start with this photo. Uh, this has no connection to us other than this. This is a picture that was taken back in May, uh, just inside Mexico across the Texas border. And um, this is a team of people that built that home behind them for the family that's kind of situated in the middle. And it was with this organization that we've been supporting for years called Casas Por Cristo. And they've been building houses for the poor in Mexico and now in Honduras for many, many years. And the significance of this photo is a couple things. One, this photo is a picture of their 4,000th home that they've built. So that's pretty cool, right? So like as a church that has gone and done trips, we're going again on President's Day uh, weekend next year. So make, log that in your mind. Uh, but none of the people in the picture, we don't know them. I mean, I just took it off their, you know, this is the, the news story they hit the, their blog and so forth. And so I just grabbed it. It's a great story. Uh, but here's what I know about mission trips and a group like that. There's 40 people in the photo. Some of them are babies of the people that went to work. So I can't imagine what that was like. Um, <laughs> and then there's a couple of uh, people in the middle that is the family of that home. And so, you know, take away the children and the family that the home was built for. You know, 33, 34, 35 people were there working on that project. Here's the thing, or here's the reality. My guess is that all four, not all 40 of those people really wanted to be there, right? Sort of a silent groan. Here's what you know what I'm saying. Sometimes you get asked to do stuff like, hey, why don't you come to Mexico and help us build this house for this poor family? And you feel like really compelled, mainly because that's just a good idea, right? And then you're like, well, I can't say no to that because if I say no, I'm clearly like, not a good person. And so you say yes, and you're kind of excited about it. But at the end of the day, if there's 40 people on a trip, on a mission trip in some other country, I'm going to say three, four, or five of them, they'd much rather be at home. I mean, they're going to do the work. They're going to do the, the project. But at the end of the day, when you go to their dorm room at night, it, it's like a prison cell. They've got the marks of when, they, when they're going home, right? Here's how I know that. When I was in youth ministry, as a youth pastor, we did two mission trips a year, one in the States, one overseas. So I was pretty much a professional at taking people on mission trips. And I just know 25 kids on a trip, five of them I wanted to send home because they didn't want to be there. And you can always tell because they're not dirty. They're taking a lot of pictures. They're trying to tweet, you know, like, really? Uh, <laughs> you know, capturing them, live tweeting from Mexico, building a house. You know, actually, I'm not building anything. All right. So I know from experience that, and this even goes for me, like it's on the calendar, I'm the leader of the trip, but at the end of the day, I'd rather, I'd rather just be at home, right? Have you ever been in that situation? Now, it doesn't have to be a mission trip. I know that, a, you know, let's just make it more every day. I mean, there's just times when you're called to do something good and you would rather just not. And here's why. And this is just a, a very low-level description you got your own problems. Are you with me on that? Like people come to you and they say, hey, we really need you for this project or we really need you to help this family out or we really need you to do this for me or this person or whatever. And you say yes, but in your mind, you're thinking, I got my own things that I need to work through. I got all this stuff going on in my own life. And you've been there, I'm sure. Again, it doesn't have to be a trip like that. But there are just times uh, in life when you would rather just hole up somewhere and be alone. Can I get an amen on that? Like the world's just kind of like, 
we need you, we need you, we need you. And your instinct at that moment is just to run away and just hide, hole up in the corner and hope that everybody just goes away, right? I was, uh, this may sound strange to you, but I was asked to speak at this retreat um, for this really big congregation, just for their staff. And this is such an interesting thing. Um, And it's a local church. And this was a few years back. And I asked the person uh, who asked me to speak, I was like, what what is it that you want me to say? Or what is it you're going through that I can help? You know, whatever. And they said, well, my team's burning out. So if you could just kind of speak into that. It's like, okay. So I start off, they put me at this discussion table and and I start off and I say, why don't we just go around the circle and you tell me what is stressing you out in your ministry right now that you're leading. And no sooner than I said that, this girl says, I'll go. (laughs) Okay, you got the floor. And she said, I have a stack of cards this high on my desk of all these new people that want to volunteer. And I just want them to go away. Now you go, ooh, that's terrible. And I said, you know, I'm like a counselor on that point. Go on, you know. (laughs) Can we have 400 of those? So, are those children's workers? Uh, and she said, I've already got a thousand people that I'm trying to take care of. And here come 500 more, you know? And it's good stuff. But at the end of the day, she would just much rather shred those things and they just disappeared. You ever feel like that? Okay, I just want to make sure I'm not alone on that. That wasn't in my notes. That was free. Okay, here we go. Um, Here's what's very normal for us, and this will set us up uh, for getting into our passage today. We've been talking about pain and suffering, and what is the biblical response to that? And I'll do a quick review at the end of what we've learned so far just to catch you up. But the thing I want to talk about today is, A, what's very normal for us is that when we're going through struggles, when we're going through our own uh, hardship and difficulties, it's very easy for us to disengage from others. It's also very easy for us to disengage from uh, doing good for others. When we're, when we're having our own problems and we're going through whatever it is that we're going through that's very tough, it's just easier for us at that point to say no to everybody else. Now, sometimes that's healthy, but that's not what this sermon is about. Uh, this is about the other side of the fence. This is about where the Bible says, don't do that. God calls us to live these generous lives, these giving lives where we help others, where we're serving him by serving others. And when we're going through difficulty in our lives, it's very easy for us to say, you know what, for a while, I'm just going to hold up somewhere and wait for all these people and their problems to go away. And the problem with that is, is that, you know, us being, at least by God's design and and heartbeat for us, his hands and feet in the world. There's just not a plan B for that. There's just no plan B for how he's impacting the lives of the people around us. And so if we give up on that, if we, just because we're going through a rough time or a rough season, the Bible has some really difficult things to say about that. And so that's what we're going to do today. It's a very, very strange text. You were probably listening to Jeff read it saying, I, I don't get that. But we'll try, well, I'll try my best to get us through it. But essentially, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks or a few weeks, let me catch you up to what this is, has been about. We're in this New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you have a Bible, chapter 8, uh, we'll be there for a little while. Um, 
this letter was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. He started this church right in the middle of the first century, and he spent about 18 months there as their pastor. And so, uh, which, you know, and after that, he left to go start more churches and so on around the world. And the thing is, when he left, he started to uh, experience all kinds of difficulty in his life, hardship, trials, persecution, shipwrecks. He almost died a few times. He counts the number of lashes on his back. I mean, this guy's had a tough, tough go at it. And the thing about his pain and suffering was that the news of that reached Corinth and the people in Corinth, the church in Corinth, started to question Paul's credibility, not only as a leader or an apostle or a church planter, but even as a Christian. Because if you're going through suffering, then clearly God isn't on your side. And the moment we laugh at that, we have to step back and say, wait a minute, we do that too. Because whenever something is just sort of falling apart in somebody's life, if you're a religious person, you automatically think, what did they do to make God angry? Right? Never mind that your check engine light's been on for six years. When the car finally breaks down, we just automatically assume that God's trying to teach me something. And so Paul in this letter, among many things that he's doing through this letter, he's defending himself and his faith and his calling. And he's basically saying this, suffering is no indication of a person's character or the way that God sees them. But how I get through suffering, and this is his main message, that is how I show God's presence in my life. See, they were assuming that because of suffering, God was absent. And maybe you think that too. Like if I'm going through difficulty in life, then God must be somewhere else working with someone else. But Paul sort of refutes that and says, actually, it's how you get through it that proves God's presence in your life. And in this case, in his life. And so it is, there's a little bit of a polemic here for Paul writing back to the people in Corinth saying, look, let me just sort of tell you how I've made it through suffering. And maybe you're not going through suffering at the, at the moment, but when you do, because we all will, it's just a cycle. You're in it, you're getting out of it, and you're going back into it. I mean, that's just kind of how it happens. When we're in it, we can sort of take these things uh, to heart and put them into practice. Are you ready? Let's do verse 7. Uh, This is where our text begins, but it's actually in the middle of a larger story. It says, but as you excel, and this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, and he's laying it on pretty thick here, in faith and speech and knowledge and our love for you. So this is just kind of like, man, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then he says, see that you excel in this, what? Act of grace. This act of grace also. Some versions say the grace of giving. Does anybody say that? So cool, kind of gives away the farm, but just hang with me here. Uh, See that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, just as you're like stellar in all these things, and faith and speech and knowledge and our love for one another, just laying it on. He says, I want you to also excel in this gift of grace or in this grace of giving. So here's the background. Again, it's part of a larger story. We're going to look at verse 1 in a moment uh, so you can kind of see where this is all coming from. But he asks this church in Corinth, and he's asking us today as well, to excel or to improve and to become great at this act of grace. Now, here's the backstory: For about five years of Paul's life, from about the year 52 to 57, right in the middle of the first century, he's collecting money from all these churches to give to the poor in Jerusalem. There had been a famine in the late 40s 
uh, and when there was a famine in those days, everybody flooded the cities because the cities had water, the city had sanitation, the city had jobs, the city had security, the city had opportunity. And so when there was a famine, and particularly in a place like Jerusalem and the surrounding area, it would flood, people would flood the city and it, there would be overcrowding. And Jerusalem is, was one of, a, one of the major cities in those days, but it wasn't giant. And so all these people came into Jerusalem. And because of that, among other things like high taxes, uh, this newly formed um, religious movement, not called Christianity yet, but the followers of Christ, the church, uh, many of them were being persecuted, not physically, but being abandoned, sort of spiritually abandoned. Uh, there was overpopulation and a food shortage, which normally goes hand in hand. And all of this had to do with just kind of a natural sort of outward um, circumstance of famine. And so Jerusalem was overcrowded. The church in Jerusalem was strapped. I mean, they were doing their best. And so Paul's efforts were basically to aid the church in Jerusalem, serving the poor who were there, homeless, struggling, and so forth. So it's, this is sort of the backstory. Now, when he was in Corinth planting the church, apparently he started to tell them then, hey, let's just start setting money aside for the poor but they hadn't finished the job. Notice what he says in the first letter to the Corinthians. This is what he says. I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, which just means as you have it, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So this is Paul saying, before I get there, just put the money in a, you know, whatever, in a box so that we don't have to do this big emotional moment from the stage where I show pictures from Jerusalem of all the poor, which... Doesn't happen back then, by the way. Um, so that you'll feel guilty and give money. That's not what he's saying. He's like, just make the decision now. Set it aside. So when I get there, there just won't have to be any collecting. It's done. And then he says, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter, which is an official way of sending people, you know, that's credibility for them, by letter, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So even in the first letter, we see Paul reminding them, hey, listen, there's this whole project that we have undergone, or we've, we've decided to undergo together. And I want you to continue on in that. Notice what he says in verse five of that same text. I will visit you after passing through where? Okay, so that's the clue. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter eight, where we were. Paul travels after he left Corinth through Macedonia, churches in cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, places like Berea, now, here's the, here's the history, or at least a snippet, of what was going on in those days in that region. They were terribly poor, partly because of famine, but partly just because of economics. And partly, there's some persecution going on. And their situation as church communities and just individuals was terrible. They were poor, an extreme poverty. This, that, in, in fact, that's exactly what he says in verse, verses 1 in two of our, of our texts today. Notice what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of what? Affliction. That's a strong word, by the way. That's not like they're having a rough time. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now, I've highlighted some words here for you because it's just, this is where Paul's just brilliant in packaging this. Like, those are words that just never go together. 
joy and affliction, poverty, joy out of poverty, and so, so forth. Uh, the next slide has some of the Greek for you. The word trial or affliction, there it is. And this has to do with sort of unfortunate circumstances. I mean, these are just things that happen to you. It's not self-inflicted. It's not your fault. It's just, it's famine. It's bad weather. It's economics. I mean, it's all these things that happen. And so he's painting this picture of these churches in Macedonia, like they're dealing with this reality, right? They're dealing with job loss. They're dealing with uh, estrangement. They're dealing with abandonment. They're dealing with all these things. And it's not really their fault. It's just the way it is. And then he uses this word for poverty, which, and I've just translated this very simple for you, just rock bottom. The word poor, by the way, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will um, inherit the earth, right? That's the meek, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm tired, I've been up all night. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So the word poor in the days of Jesus had obviously long before existed, However, by the time of Jesus, the word poor had moved from simply an economic term to a term that basically described that you've got nothing left but God or the gods. If you're poor, you basically have nobody on your side. You have nothing to hope for except God to come through. And so these are the words he uses to describe the Macedonian situation. Notice how he finishes that statement, though. Having overflowed in a wealth of what? Generosity on their part. This is extraordinary. If you look in your Bibles, we don't necessarily get into this verse by verse, but Paul says right after this, when he was in Macedonia, these churches gave him money for the poor in Jerusalem. They're poor themselves. And they gave him money for those churches. Paul says he refused it. He says, no, no, you can have it. We don't need You don't need to do this. It's not responsible. It's not wise. And then he says, no, they insisted. They gave gave it to us and sent us on our way. Now, again, highlighting some things, affliction, joy, poverty, wealth, generosity. Again, these things don't go together. When you are in affliction, you never say, at least not naturally, man, this is such a great thing. So joyful. Or when you're in poverty, You never use the word wealth. Never. Like there's such a wealth in my brokenness. That's not a word. But, or generosity. Like that doesn't come from poverty. Scarcity comes from poverty. But somehow this community in Macedonia had learned to pull all those things together. That somehow joy can come from affliction. That wealth and generosity can flow out of poverty. It's extraordinary. It's the upside down way of Jesus. And he just goes on to talk about their generosity, even though they themselves were in the midst of great suffering, beaten down by troubles and affliction of their own. They had their own problems. And they were still joyful in their participation in God's work. And so back to our main verse, verse 7, Paul says, look, I want you to emulate these people and I want you to excel in this act of grace. And this means this story of these other places that were giving out of their poverty, that were still continuing to live generously, even though they had nothing. And Paul calls the behavior of the Macedonian churches an act of grace. And if you've been around here at least this year, you've heard over and over and over again that grace is simply rooted in what is never earned. 
and giving what was never earned. And therefore, it is undeserved. And grace has a way of confusing us because that's not logical. It's unrelenting. It's intentional in carrying the burdens of others with no, with no hope of a return. And in the case of the Macedonian churches, their willingness to participate in God's mission among the poor, when they themselves were poor, is nothing less than an act of grace. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to excel in this kind of thing. And so what does this have to do with pain and suffering? These churches were having their own problems and were still convicted to keep participating in the work of God. Not saying, hey, we've got our own problems right now. We'll get to that. But in some, in some way, in some form, continuing to go hand in hand with God throughout his work in the world. You can say it this way. Grace, or the act of grace, is simply giving when you should be the one receiving. That's grace. You're the one giving when you really need to be the one receiving. It's to make yourself available to others when honestly you'd rather just run away. That's this act of grace. He says this in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was what? Rich. Not monetarily. Jesus had nothing. Yet for your sake became poor, so that you, may, uh, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Not monetarily, but in this grace. In this relationship with God, a rich connection with God. This mirrors Philippians 2 where it says even though he was equal with God, he didn't consider that uh, anything to be grasped. But Jesus became nothing, a servant. And so Paul reminds these Corinthians of this truth saying, look, even Jesus himself became poor so that we might become rich in our relationship with him. Watch how Paul ends this whole passage He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, I know that sounds like a fortune cookie thing, like you open the fortune cookie and you're like, cool, lotto numbers, and on the other side, he who gathered much had nothing left, you know, and you sort of go, okay, great, I'll have more rice. That's what it sounds like, right? But he's quoting Exodus 16, 18. Do you know this story? This is the story of the Israelites in the wilderness and they're griping because they don't have, and I quote, pots of meat. They're telling Moses we had it better as slaves. We circled up around pots of meat. I mean, can you see that? I mean, it's like fogo to chow. Like, this is what they imagined slavery like when they were free. Isn't that funny? Like, they're free and now they look back and go, slavery was much better because we didn't have to provide for ourselves. And so God says, all right, just tells Moses, tell them, look, I'm going to provide them food every day. He calls it manna. And manna basically means, what is that? That's what that means. And so um, it's true. Look at <laughs> Like I'm making this up. Um, so he tells Moses, tell the people, I will feed them. But here are the rules. They gather enough manna off the ground for the day. No more. And on the sixth day, they gather twice as much because the Sabbath is coming and you're not going to gather anything on the Sabbath. Now, here's the response of the Israelite community to that uh, command. Some of them did it to a T. We will collect for the day, no more, no less. 
We will trust that God will provide. Many others, however, said, that's ridiculous. We're going to collect as much as we can. And this whole six-day Sabbath day thing, that's junk. We're going to collect so much that we're not going to have that fear that something's going to run out. But God has this other plan, this sort of strange, miraculous thing. If you gathered too much and you had some left over at the end of the day, you went to bed at night. When you woke up, all that manna was gone. God just, I don't know what he did to it, just gone. It rotted away. Right? And if you gathered enough, whether you gathered enough or too much, everybody ended up with the same. And so basically what, Paul, what, what this scripture is saying and what Paul's quoting is saying, look, whoever thought they needed more ended up with nothing at the end of the day. And whoever just thought they could live day to day, they never lacked. It's still the same result for both sides. And so the whole thing here, how he ends this passage, starting with the Macedonian story, look, out of their poverty they gave, out of their own needs, they still participated in God's mission among the poor. And then Paul, right in the middle of this text, says, you need to do the same thing emulate and excel in this act of grace, which is basically giving when you should be the one receiving, living generously when you really need some love and as well. And then he closes saying, let me remind you of the Israelites. Even though you're Greek and you're Corinthian, you are now a part of that story. Let me remind you that this has always been a problem, that when you are struggling, it's just easy to grab as much as you can for yourself and for no one else. To take your eyes off what God has you doing in the world and putting all of that on hold. And when we're going through our own set of struggles and difficulty, it's just easy for us, easier, just to hold up somewhere for a while, close off the rest of the world until everything shakes down. So it's a rich passage. I mean, when you and I are in the midst of suffering, we must remember, and this is so key, that God, even though we feel like we need a break from whatever God is doing through us and in us, that God has not put on hold his work in us and through us until things shake down. It's not what he's doing. Again, there are times when we have to sort of retreat, but that's not what this is about. This is about the, like on the contrary, when we're pushed to continue living these gracious and generous lives, even though our instinct might be to run away. The biblical response is very difficult to that reality. It says you stay in the game and you continue to serve and you continue to live a generous life to your neighbors, to those you work with, to your family, and continually giving of ourselves to others and the work of God in the world. Because it's just easy when things are tough to stop doing that. Let me close with a story and then one verse. About 10 years ago, I got a phone call, and it was this uh, friend of mine, and he said, hey, there's a church in Macon that needs a preacher for the day. I said, I'm your man. And so I got a little bit of information about the church. It was like off this you know, side road. It was had a couple of buildings, I had an address, and so all that to say, I got ready uh, to go, I got my sermon together, I put my suit on, by the way, I have a suit, probably didn't know that. I put the suit on because they said, you gotta wear a suit, you gotta wear a suit. Okay, great, I love wearing a suit. And so, 
I put the suit on and I drove down to Macon and I pulled off the exit, pulled into the church parking lot. And what I saw was like three buildings. There was like a sanctuary building and like a little education type building. And then this big building behind it. So you could tell that like the church had had some, you know, had some life to it. Um, and then I walked in and there was, it was unlocked, but there was nobody in there, um, which is creepy. And then this old lady comes out of the other door and we both look at each other kind of startled. And then, uh, so I told her who I was. She told me who she was. We exchanged uh, pleasantries because uh, we're both from the South and we know how to do that dance, you know. Uh, oh, that's good. How you doing? Okay. Um, and then I said, well, I'm the preacher for the day. And that was like 10 years ago. So she looked at me like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what they sent us, you, you know. And uh, so again, we talked and I said, well, tell me about the service and when I speak or whatever. She says, oh, well, they didn't tell you what you need to do. And I was like, well, I got, you know, the sermon. She says, no, no, you do everything. You're going to lead the singing. You're going to handle communion, uh, which we need to make, by the way. And then you're going to do offering and then you'll do the sermon and then you'll do the invitation and then you'll stand down front if anybody wants to come and give their life to Christ. And then I was like, oh, okay. So all of it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> can't imagine why there's not a preacher here. So, uh, <laughs> so it's time for the service to start, and um, seven people are in there. Seven. And they all had their own pew. So I knew the story right then. Like, I got it. I, I got it. They don't even like each other, you know. Seven is all that showed up. They were basically a house church that still had a building somewhere, but they don't like each other but they're still here. And so we led the singing, which was terrible. And then um, we did communion and then we did offering. And then I told a couple of jokes at the top of the sermon. Nobody laughed, got a couple of uh, <clears throat> those. And, um, <laughs> that, you know, that's kind of how it went, you know. And so finished the sermon, went down front. Nobody came forward, by the way. Uh, it was a banner Sunday. So said amen, six of the seven left. Who's left? The lady that I met when I got there. So I guess she's like lady elder, queen. She runs the place. So I approach her and I say, can you please show me around the church? Like I would love to see, the, I mean, I genuinely wanted to see the church. And she said, oh yeah, well, sure. So we walk out of the sanctuary into this hallway, back into this little building, which again was like the education building, the children's ministry building or whatever, but it had clearly not been occupied in years. There was stuff in the hall. There were cribs in the closet, high chairs, put away. Nothing was on the walls. Everything was just kind of like boarded up, right? And as we're walking through the hall, she's telling me the story, the stories of the church. Well, we used to have this, and then there was this, and then all these people, and blah, 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 and just sort of the typical downward spiral, right? Tough. And so then we walked out of that building, outside, and then into what is a gym, which I was like, what are you doing with a gym? So we walk into the gym, we open the doors, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that from floor to almost halfway up to the ceiling were piles of like moving boxes, like all throughout the gym. And it was like just extraordinary, like that's a lot of boxes. And I said, what, what's the deal with the boxes? And this is what she said to me. She said, oh, well, we've been collecting clothes for the homeless. And I'm like, from when? Right? I mean, there's probably, that's probably some great thrift store shopping in there. Like, what year did y'all start collecting 
And then she began to tell me, like, but no one's ever done anything with it. So I don't know how many years that all that stuff had been sitting in there. And I left that day feeling sad, not for them, but with them. Like, that's so terrible. Like, all those boxes represented, in part, the mission of God's church. And it was just sitting in a gym. And so I just felt sad for them and with them. But I also felt convicted, like, I don't want to get to the end of my life either and end up standing before God with all these boxes behind me of his work that I just couldn't do because we were dealing with my own problems. And the thing about that church is, it's like any other church community, the moment things get tough, all that outward stuff stops pretty much every time. All that mission stuff, all that sort of selfless, outward, serve the city stuff, all this stuff just ceases to exist because we have our own problems, right? Bring the photo back up of the Casas. I mean, I'm just thinking in today's economy, this is May of this year. How many of those 40 people are struggling financially? How many do you think? All of them? Half? Do you suppose that maybe one of those people might lose their home? Do you suppose that maybe one of those people, they're going through a very difficult time in their work? Maybe their family is on the brink? I mean, statistically, there's got to be somebody in that group that's struggling. And they're smiling for the picture, but it doesn't feel good. You know what I'm saying? We call that obedience, faithfulness. Like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Because I'm not going to get to the end of my life and there's a bunch of boxes taped up with what God was trying to do through me. And I shouldn't have time for it because I got to deal with me right now. There's a time for that, but that's not what this is about. So let me close by saying this is what we have learned so far. A few weeks ago, we learned that God makes his home in broken people, and that's a huge amen. Number two is we learned that in the midst of suffering, we are to maintain the behaviors of faith, devotional life, prayer, community, worship. We shouldn't abandon those when we're going through struggles. We also learned that God is always at work in us, even when nothing is working around us. Amen? Because that's what we think. Like, if everything around us isn't working, then maybe God is absent. But God is continually working this new creation in us. Last Sunday, we learned that when we're at the crossroads of faith, endure. Don't settle for anything less than God's best for you. Don't fall to a lesser God. And then today, it's best said through Paul's words to the Galatian church, let us not grow weary of doing what? good. And this verse comes at the end of a passage about carrying each other's burdens. And Paul says, don't get tired. You can get tired of a lot of stuff, but don't grow weary of doing good. Never. Which isn't easy, but the way of Jesus is not easy. And Paul says to us today, when you're in the midst of suffering, don't grow weary of doing good. And sometimes, not all the time, But sometimes doing good is good medicine. Sometimes building a house in Mexico reminds you that your 17-room house is okay. (laughs) 
right? Are you with me on that? Sometimes de-licing a kid in Honduras reminds you that, you know what, we can buy the generic brand shampoo. I mean, it's, like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Don't grow weary of doing good because sometimes it helps you and it helps center the whole situation. Let me pray for you and then we're going to sing a couple songs before we go. Please stand. God, thank you for today and thank you for uh, these words in your scriptures. Um, They are encouraging and sometimes they're very challenging. And God, the last thing we want to hear sometimes is that when we're going through difficult uh, seasons, is that you want us to maintain the pace and the cadence of good works. And God, that's why we need each other, to keep spurring one another onto that. Your word in Hebrews 10 reminds us of that, that we, we don't give up on those things, but we continually stay in each other's face and encouraging one another to keep doing good things. Because regardless of how we feel or what's going on in our lives, your mission is still moving. And so, Father, we, it's a prayer of repentance. We ask forgiveness for when we have given up and fallen prey to something less than what you have for us. But God, we also pray a prayer of strength in the times of stress and the times of difficulty to continue being the people you want us to be. God, help us as a church community because that's part of what this is about, that we remain a generous people. That even though we may go through ups and downs as a community, that we will always be generous to our city, to our neighbors, to one another. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.